From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Danny McBride. He plays Jesse Gemstone, the firstborn son in a world-famous televangelist family on HBO's The Righteous Gemstones. In this world, it felt like Jesse would hate if his son went off and became a part of, like, leftist Hollywood. He would probably hate that more than him being a Satan worshiper. And so it just felt like a, a funny thing to sort of give him and rile him up. Danny also discusses his religious upbringing and how producers convinced John Goodman to agree to his role as patriarch on the HBO comedy. Plus... Danny responds to all the fan chatter that he should have been cast as Joe Exotic in the scripted adaptation of Netflix's Tiger King. Here we go. Danny, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had nothing else to do. I've done nothing for the last 60 days. So uh, this is an exciting moment. Oh, wow. That's a lot of pressure. I hope I live up to it. So tell me, where are you calling us from? I'm uh, calling you from my offices in Charleston, South Carolina. So how are you doing these days? Like, what's a typical day like for Danny McBride? You know, I've kind of just been hanging out with the family. I've kind of unplugged from pretty much everything. I haven't been watching any of the news. I haven't binged TV shows. I've just been sort of just hanging with the family and just writing, just, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that, like, my hobby, which is writing, is what my career is. And so uh, even though nothing's happening right now, I can still sit in my house and tinker away. So I've been doing that. I'm curious, are you in the mood to be funny these days? In the mood to be funny. You know what? It's not really something I make a choice about. When I hear tragic news, my first instinct is always to, like, make a little joke and make people around me laugh. So... You know, I feel like I still hold on to my sense of humor as much as I do when there is no quarantine going on. I can't continue without bringing up something that has become very important, which is there are some people who really felt it should be you playing Tiger King's Joe Exotic, not Nicolas Cage. Do you have thoughts on this? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like I, uh, I'm i not on Twitter. I don't have Twitter, but I start, a few nights ago, I started getting text messages from random people asking if I was okay. And I'm like, what's happening? And they're like, you're trending on Twitter. I thought maybe you had gotten COVID-19. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't been out of my house. What's going on? And then I saw that that's what it was about. And uh, yeah, I was shocked. I was surprised. I think Nicolas Cage is a wonderful choice for that, though. I think he, he's, he's going to be pretty awesome to see what he does with that role. Now I want to know what the Danny McBride stamp on that character would have been. <laughs> I think you've seen versions of him before from me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you think Jesse Gemstone would be handling the current situation? What would he be doing? Oh, man, what would he be doing? You know, the Gemstones are very lucky because they're like a lot of the super rich celebrities. They have a, a gigantic compound. So like them quarantining and isolating themselves would still mean they could go to their amusement park. They could travel on acres of land on golf carts. So I think they would be like also working actively to make sure that they could still reach their followers, even if it had to be through uh, the Internet or PayPal. Okay, so let's talk about the show. I mean, it focuses on a family of Carolina televangelists, and you were raised Baptist. Both your parents were really involved in the church. What memories stand out about your religious upbringing? 
You know, it's one of those things I felt this way when I graduated from like high school and college. You know, people will look back when they were young and think like, oh, that was awesome in college and we would party all the time or in high school when you would just fuck off all the time. But when I look back on those things, I'm like, man, this is one of the few times in life where you're constantly forced every day to do something that you don't want to do. And like being thrown in with all these people that also don't want to do it anyway. It, I don't know. I always feel like it, it breeds like funny stories and funny ideas. And when I was a kid, I feel like that's what church was like. I feel like I used to always dread it and didn't want to go. I would pretend to be sleeping in my bed when I was a kid, hoping that my parents wouldn't realize I hadn't like woken up with the prayer that they would leave me at home and I wouldn't have to go to church. And then once we stopped going, it's kind of became something that later in life, I kind of missed that like hour and a half of not really being in charge of what you're going to do. And you just have to sit there with your thoughts and listen to somebody uh, sitting between my parents and how safe that felt as a kid. So I, I don't know. I think I, we stopped going when I was in sixth grade. So I was pretty young when we when we stopped doing it. So I would like basically I don't have really many memories uh, beyond just flashes of sitting in a pew and, and being bored and listening to stuff or going to youth group church lock-ins and things like that. What would you think about in those times where you would have to do the prayer? Like I always struggle. Like I was raised Catholic and I always remember like when it would be time to pray and stuff like that, I, I like my mind would wander. I would never do what you were actually like supposed to think about, I think. Well, I feel like I had gone to with friends to church when I was a kid to their Catholic church. And that was like a totally different world to me when I went there. It's like all the standing up and sitting down and like repeating all these things. It seemed like you had to participate more. And in mine, I felt like I could just let my mind wander. But I'm the same way. I think I, most of the time when we would pray, I would spend my prayers like with my eyes open, looking around at all the people like doing it and, and seeing who isn't doing it. Do you know what prompted like your family to sort of cut back on it? You know, my parents, uh, you know, were really active in, in our church. Like I, you know, when I was really, really little, we lived in like Lompoc, California. My parents were involved in the church there. And then when we moved to Virginia, you know, my mom had worked with a lot of like the Spanish speaking church members uh, that were in the community. And so when we came to Virginia, that's what she did for the church in Virginia. She would like help with a lot of people that were just like settling to the area from other countries and just kind of getting them involved in the church and a part of the community. You know, my mom would write these like puppet shows. She'd do these plays for like the the children where they would have like these puppet characters and she would write the scripts for it and perform these things. Her and my dad would. And I mean, I just, we were at church all the time I mean, not just Sundays, like Wednesdays. We were such a part of it. And they my parents gave so much time to it. And uh, my parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade. And, you know, my mom was sort of like, my dad ran out. My mom was sort of left to sort of just fend for me and my younger sister on her own. And you know, we go to church and then suddenly like that place wasn't like as welcoming to her. You know, I think there was a lot of people that were just sort of like judging her because she got a divorce. And, you know, it just, I don't know, as a kid, it just sort of, it kind of stuck with me. And I think for her, it got to the point where she just kind of stopped going and she would just drop me and my sister off every Sunday and we would just go by ourselves. And after a few months, it was like, what's the point? Like, what are we, what are we trying to hold on to here? And so, you know, I think my mom stayed pretty religious and uh, like I, my aunt is a minister, but I think for her, the uh, I think she just kind of got soured on the organized aspect of it and, and what that can breed sometimes. And so we just kind of drifted away from it. It's 1945. 
Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. Join me and historian Monique Laney on the series Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, how long would you say this idea for the show was sort of percolating in your head? And why did you want to explore this world for a TV series? You know, I moved to Charleston about almost three years ago, Charleston, South Carolina from L.A. And, um, you know, it was just a big adjustment for me and my family. And I was here just sort of like trying to figure out like what I wanted to do next and what I wanted to write about. And, you know, being in a, in a town like Charleston, it's also known as the holy city. Like downtown, they don't have any buildings like higher than church steeples. And, you know, there's like religion is a, an important part of the culture around here. And you can take a drive through the countryside and, you know, there's a, a church and like every mile or two. And, you know, you turn on the radio station and it's, you know, every other station's a religious station. It's, you know, religion's a big part of people's lives here. And it just kind of made me sort of reflect on like when I went to church and what that was like. And it made me kind of just curious, like, well, what's church like now? How is it different? And I started just doing a little research on it. And then that's when I started kind of seeing these things with these mega churches and and how like religion almost had been kind of like turned into like a corporation for some of these places. And they were finding ways to like reach you know, new members the same way that like, you know, you know, a movie would do market research to decide who's going to show up at a movie. It's like, and things that are offensive to people, they'll, these make, some of these megachurches will strip that sort of imagery and stuff out to not scare people off. And uh, it just kind of seemed interesting that, that weird world where Christianity sort of meets capitalism. And it just made me think like, you know, who's at the center of this? Like who's doing this? And I don't know, just the more I looked into it, it just felt like it was a story that was ripe for now. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I didn't want to take on some sort of like big comment on what I think about what people should believe or any of that. It, it really wasn't the point of it. You know, I wanted to do something like what Sopranos did. It's like, you're not, you know, there's not a big comment on the mafia there. It's just setting a story about a family that takes place in this world that a lot of people don't know about. And then you kind of see the family. And even though they're in this mafia world, you can identify with the relationships between siblings and parents and spouses. And so I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to take this sort of heightened kind of funny world that, that felt relevant to explore right now and and then set a story that at the core of it is something that is, you know, relatable for most people, which is it's a story about a family and about a family going through change and about a family who's suffered like a great loss and everyone's sort of looking to each other to figure out who's going to pull them out of this. And it's about them trying to figure out that it's kind of up to them to pull up, pull themselves out. What's your relationship to religion and faith these days? 
You know, I think I'm someone who is definitely, I mean, I guess the old adage is like, people are always talking about like, well, I'm not, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious or whatever that is. It's like, I kind of feel the same way as cliched as that is. Like, I don't have the answers. So I definitely wouldn't be someone who would be trying to like knock somebody for what they believe. I just, I, I, I don't know. I just find it off-putting and, you know, every, nobody knows what what's going to happen. There's nobody. And so for me, it's, uh, you know, I, I saw things when I was a kid in, in the church that we went to that... You know, I'm sure it's not how all churches are. I mean, that was our specific situation, but there was just things that I felt like were surrounding it that didn't feel like what was being preached about, you know, like this idea of people just being petty and judgmental and and using their association with religion to sort of look down on other people. It didn't really feel like it was a, a Christian value and it didn't feel like something I wanted to be exposed to anymore. And so I think I've carried a little bit of that with me as an adult, you know, for my kids. I don't really feel the need to take them into a church every Sunday. But I do kind of struggle with trying to figure out how to instill the sort of values or morals that kind of does just come from going to something like church and just getting the most basics of not not killing people and not envying people and not, you know, being an asshole, basically. <laughs> well, how much of the Gideon character, and for the listeners that don't know, Gideon is your son in the show who's like gone off to Los Angeles to be a stunt person. How much of Gideon is modeled after you, like the big shot who left? He's not really modeled after me. It's like, uh, you know, I guess we just might have used like slang and lingo that we've just heard, you know, just working in the industry. But for us, it was really about like if, if you were a, a famous pastor, you know, in the South and in this region, like what would be the last thing that you think you'd want your kid to go do? And for us, like in this world, it felt like Jesse would hate if his son went off and became a part of, of leftist Hollywood. That would be his ultimate, <laughs> that'd be the ultimate thing that that he would hate. He would probably hate that more than him being a Satan worshiper. And so it just felt like a, a funny thing to sort of give him and rile him up. And I think it's a way that his son is, uh, you know, Gideon for all the bad stuff he does in this season, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, he's just trying to get out from underneath the shadow of his family and carve his own path. And so, uh, you know, I think sometimes we can, you know, we can push our kids into like being opposed to the stuff that's important to us just purely because they want to have their own running room. Has your aunt watched the show, your aunt that's the minister, and what were her thoughts? Because, like, what was the challenge for you in terms of the balance of not making fun of this community? You know, she did watch it. She would send me little emails every day after she finished it. And uh, even the last one, she was like, that's what it's all about. That's, you know, what the show adds up to. She was like, that's what, you know, that's what it's about right there. It's not about all the nonsense. It's about just that, forgiving each other, opening your heart to one another. So for me, it was like, you know, look, I know that at the type of humor we do from, you know, just from the, the sort of the lines we cross and the language we use and just, you know, I, I know that it's off-putting to people and it's not anything that I'm attempting to try to like, oh, this has to appeal to everyone. I I find that I like the comedies that like don't appeal to everyone. I like stuff that's specific and, uh, and uh, I feel like there's like a challenge to kind of like jump through some hoops of taste before you get to the, to the center. And so... I guess for me, I just, you know, I didn't want the, I didn't want what pissed people off about the show to be that, like, I was, like, speaking down to someone who believed in this stuff. Because ultimately, like, you know, I don't, like I said earlier, I don't know what the hell I believe. I'm not trying to have some standpoint. So, you know, if people didn't like it because of the language or because of the, the nature of it or how many male dicks we show in it, that's okay. I'm okay with people not liking it for that reason. I didn't want it to be something that got wrapped up in some controversy that it was like, you know, 
just trying to make fun of people who believe in something. I just, I don't know. It's just not something I find funny. Well, Kenny Powers and Neil Gamby, like your characters on Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals, they were guys who had like chips on their shoulders because they felt they were entitled to certain things. And Jesse is a guy who has everything he wants. He's privileged, and yet, you know, he still feels entitled to things. So what was different about playing that guy who has it all and wants more? You know, that was like, we, we talked about that as soon as we were kind of cracking this this show, the pilot of it. It's like, you know, with a lot of our other shows from Vice Principals to Eastbound, it's like you said, they're, they're guys who kind of didn't land where they thought they were going to land. And then they kind of blame the world around them, the people around them for that. And this was the very first time where it was like, no, this guy's gotten exactly what he wants. He is in a big world. He's not like in a high school and pretending that he's on a battlefield. He's not, you know, substitute teaching in a gym class and wishing he was on the, on, you know, on the mound in the World Series. This is a guy who's at the World Series and he still isn't happy. And so for us to kind of like be able to flex in a world where there is all this like opulence and this big nature I don't know. I think it added to the comedy of it all, of that we could just explore these bigger areas and people can jump on private planes and be in China in one scene and be in South Carolina the next. It was fun for the storytelling aspect that like, you know, as crazy as it is, it, you know, it, it's like this is it wish fulfillment in a weird way of like someone had like as we started cracking the season, like and you start thinking about how much money the gemstones have you know, creatively coming up with what's on their compound. It does become this sort of weird thing of like, God, it would be fun to play around with this much money and figure out how you would waste it all. There's a song, I think it's in episode five, called Misbehaving. And it's an earworm that will stay with you for days. And you wrote the song with Edie Patterson, right? Who plays Judy Gemstone. Yeah, Edie, who plays Judy in the in the show, who plays Jesse's uh, sister. Uh, and then Joey Stevens, who's done a lot of the original music for all of our stuff from Eastbound, Vice Principals, to Foot Fist Way. He's, he's worked with us on a lot. Describe that writing session for me, please. It was, it was honestly very fast. Like what ended up happening with it is we had written an early script that uh, Amy Lee Gemstone, uh, the matriarch of the family, that she had a single when she was a kid. She was a Christian singer as a child and that she had a single that was like popular back in the 60s. And we just wrote that as a stage direction and, we, and it was part of her history. But we never really thought about like, well, what is that song? Are we going to ever hear that? And then in the, uh, the fifth episode, when we decided to kind of have a flashback episode that sort of fills in the blanks on who this person is that left the family, that became a, a moment where like, well, this is our chance to sort of hear what that song is. And so I just had that, that chorus of that bouncing around my head for a little while of like, mama told me not to, I did it anyway misbehaving. It just seemed like a fun little innocent country song. And it felt like that kind of spoke to what Amy Lee's sort of like, I feel like that's the kind of art she put out into the world. So I was just kind of riffing on that and pitched it to Edie. And then Edie just started throwing lyrics down too. And we probably wrote that song in maybe like less than 10 minutes, I think. And I took my phone and recorded Edie singing it. And then we sent it to Joey, our music composer. He finished out the song. He added the best line in the whole song, which is running through the house with a pickle in my mouth. And he played it and sang it and put it down uh, and sent it back to us the next morning. And it was the song. And we all, uh, we were just so kind of excited about it. But it also sort of filled our world out in a way as well, where it's sort of... Uh, I don't know. There was something so innocent about what she's singing about. And it kind of does speak to what the what the theme of the whole show in some regards is. It's like, you know, 
don't fuck around and you won't get in trouble. (laughs) How many times was it playing on the set? And was everyone just singing it at all hours? I think we we, we filmed that when they sang it. We we filmed that in one afternoon. You know, it was Jennifer Nettles and Walton Goggins who perform it. And, you know, everyone in the crew, I think, thought that it was a real song. Like, everyone was, like, trying to Shazam it and just, you know, and I would overhear people talking like, oh, I haven't heard this one in a long time. And you're just like, motherfucker, you've never heard this song before. Don't act like it's been a long time. It, uh, and it was something that, yeah, I think that they didn't know that it was something that was original. And then, uh, you know, in Nettles and Goggins, though, they, they just, you know, Jennifer Nettles, as soon as she starts singing, her voice is so incredible. It just kind of like, I don't know, it just, it was a moment that I think just, that's one of my favorite moments of the season. Okay, now I, I need to talk about John Goodman, who was just my surrogate father growing up. Like, I lived for Roseanne. <laughs> like, how do you get John Goodman to do this show? And what's he like between takes? You know, I think it, I think the first thing, if anyone wants to do this, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to send him the script two days after uh, Roseanne's been canceled. I feel like that's the first thing you have to do. Because uh, the schedule opened up. Sherry Thomas, our casting director, she, you know, suggest, she's like, who have you thought about for Eli? And I was like, honestly, I haven't thought about anyone. I'm not even sure. Like, when I write, I never really think about the cast. I'll, you know, um, I just, I'm always just writing. And I, like, a weird way that I'll write is I'll just imagine myself in all the roles so that I, like, don't chintz out on any of the roles and make sure that, like, each role is funny enough that someone has enough to chew on there and it's not just servicing, like, one character in the show. So I really, when she asked who I imagined for Eli, I hadn't thought of anybody for it. And she suggested John Goodman, and I was like, well, obviously he'd be incredible, but I can't imagine we'd be able to get him to do this. And uh, she sent it to him, and, uh, yeah, he called me back the next day, said he read it, said he thought it was really funny and, and was excited about coming on board. And so it was, I mean, it was awesome. And then, you know, we had the table read here in Charleston before we shot, and he sat down, and, you know, I hadn't met him before until he got here. And, and I'm like you, he's, I mean, I'm a, such a massive fan of his, and he's had such an interesting, cool career working with so many, like, filmmakers that I've admired and, and created so many characters that are still just iconic. And so everybody, I think, had the same mindset. Everybody was, like, intimidated by him when he came to the table read and not sure, like, I hope he likes me or I hope he's nice. And, you know, we started reading, and, man, he would laugh at the most fucked up stuff in the script, the stuff that would make us laugh hard too and it just created this instant kind of chemistry of like yeah he's been around for a while because he's awesome you know and because he's good and uh and he was a blast to work with it was it was fun as hell and there were multiple times where scenes would be done and Adam Devine and Edie and myself would sort of like be looking at each other just like I forgot I was in the scene I was just watching him do his thing and just like I was at home watching watching an actor I like on tv Well, and is he just like fully game when it's time to shoot like that scene from the finale with the bee in the hospital room? Yeah, he's game for everything. I mean, we put him through the ringer too. I mean, that in the finale when we're running across this field in a rainstorm confronting baby Billy, it's, uh, you know, that, you know, that was a whole entire day of shooting. And every take started with us like running, uh, you know, 100 yards in the rain, you know, wind fans being blown on us, soaking wet all day long. And Goodman's there with us the whole entire day, soggy and wet, and, you know, never gave us any, anything bad the whole day. I mean, he's constantly in it and wants to nail it. Speaking of John, who plays your father on the show, I mean, fatherhood and separation is a common thread in your shows. And, I mean, you mentioned earlier your parents divorced when you were younger. Would you say you're working through some of your feelings in your work? 
You know, it's an interesting thing. I feel like I have a I have a point of view on some of the stuff because I've been through it. So there's that, you know, where it's like you kind of write what you know. But honestly, this is my maybe my own fucking weird thing and says a little bit about my head. But I always just find that characters that are happily married are just so boring to write about in comedies because it's like if they have someone who suits them and like in understands what's good about them and is supportive of them. It's like, well, what do they really have to get pissed off about and to, and to lash out in these big ways? It seems like somebody like looking for that fulfillment or that completion comedically helps you. And so I've always just struggled. Like, I, I don't know. I just like, I feel like whenever I've tried to deal with characters that are happily married, it just becomes so boring every time you have to write those scenes that I, I like people in in turmoil and everything's not looking like it's going to work out okay. I just feel like comedically it's, they're better ingredients, but that's not to say I won't crack that one day, but I, I feel like it, uh, it's a way I think just to poke these characters I create and to mm -hmm. give them more to explore. Your style of comedy can push the limits, I think, uh, particularly because your characters often have old ways of thinking. Is there a, is there a line you won't cross like any examples of scenes or moments that you ultimately reconsidered? If we ever did, it was never because we were afraid like, oh, this is going across the line. It's at the end of the day when you're trying to like make a character piece. And, if you know, once again, we're like we like to start with characters that don't necessarily seem like the obvious choice to like construct a story around. You know, we're kind of in we've seen so many movies, so many TV shows, so many books. There's sort of these cliche cookie cutter protagonists that like have a heart of gold and need to win and. That stuff to me, like writing a character who's married happily, it just seems boring. Like I, I like starting with somebody who's messier, someone who, you know, somebody who has more things to kind of go through. And so for me, it's like if we ever cut anything out or pull back on stuff, it's that if it just like jumps what we're trying to do, if it makes a character too unlikable, if it makes a character, it makes an audience like not be able to find empathy or be able to identify with them. Uh, you know, so I think a lot of, if we ever pull back on anything, it isn't about like being afraid of a line because I feel like lines change constantly. I mean, people that were doing certain things in comedy 10 years ago now, that line has changed and people would never do that now. So I think if you're just like chasing the line, you might just end up on false ground. And so for me, I'm always just chasing what feels like it tells the story, what feels like it works with the character. And, you know, I'm not trying to bum an audience out and have them just watch something that's just a fucking bummer for, you know, 30 minutes. I understand how TV fits into people's world. It's like a chance for someone to kind of log into something, check out of their own life for a minute, be entertained, maybe make them think about something in their own life a little bit differently. But that's all it's really supposed to do. So I think when we ever pull back, it's usually because it doesn't make sense for the character or it lets people down in the form of making it good entertainment. Because people now have the means to examine things differently, like they go back and look at stuff, like, do you ever think about how is this going to play in 20 years? You know, everybody writes things or comes up and creates things differently. Like for me, for instance, it's like whenever I write something or put my energy into it, it's really just because there's lots of ideas. But whatever idea just jumps into my head and won't let me kind of think of other stuff, I don't really have any other choice but to just kind of see it through till its end. So for me, when I finish these things, a lot of times it's like my interest in them is instantly over. And like what happens to them 10 years from then, 20 years from then, it's not really something I'm thinking about when I'm creating it. I just like, you know, these characters, these ideas will come into my head and it feels like something I should explore. And I put it out there 
And it's up for people 20 years from now to make their choice on whether they enjoy that or not. But I do feel at the core, if you're not making this kind of comedy to just be shocking or to just like intentionally piss people off, and you are kind of like trying to use what's off-putting to tell a story and to tell something that at the core is honest and is sort of relatable, more relatable than what people would imagine, I feel like that more than likely will mean that your stuff will withstand the test of time. Because if you're at the end of the day just telling a story about human nature and you're scattering it with jokes, well, then hopefully that you know insight you have in human nature will be something that people will reflect 20 years from now. So humans will be dealing with forever because it's just part of what makes us. Well, before we wind down, I, I want to know more about your early years in Los Angeles. I mean, you worked at the Burbank Holiday Inn. You were a waiter at Crocodile Cafe. You were a substitute teacher. Like, what was the job you were best at? Like, could you serve a table of 10 right now? And like, how has your background as a substitute teacher helped you manage your kids doing school from home? When I was a substitute teacher, I think I was just in the wrong headspace. I was constantly just going there, just like trying to mine material. Like I was just like, I was living at my parents' house that I had like moved out of Los Angeles because I was broke and lost my job. And so I was there substitute teaching. So I didn't learn too much about teaching, but I learned a little bit about how a school works. So I feel like that ended up influencing certain things at Eastbound and vice principals. But in LA, I feel like when I moved out there, I was just trying to make ends meet and I was just trying to hustle and do whatever I could. And I'm someone who's always written. I mean, ever since I was like in middle school, I've always, that's just been my deal. I've always been a writer and always have just enjoyed it. So even moving to Los Angeles, I would just take whatever job was going to be fun and wasn't going to make me want to kill myself and then just hope that I had enough energy at the end of the night to come home and still write. So I feel like I was pretty good at waiting tables. I got pretty awesome at that. Like I liked bartending and like closing a place down at two in the morning. And then you and the other bartenders sit around and drink and party until four or five in the morning and then wake up the next day at two o'clock in the afternoon and do it all over again. Like I kind of loved that lifestyle and it was fun. And it was kind of cool knowing that any night you could go into work and you might walk out with, you know, 200 bucks more than what you anticipated. There was something about that, that I don't know. I just, it was, it didn't make the job boring. I feel like it would be very hard for me to have a desk job. That's why I like the film industry is because every year you can just, if you're lucky enough to be able to keep working and to find things that people want to see, you can kind of dictate what your next year looks like. Like, am I going to spend next year working on gemstones? Will it be trying to figure out and crack like some, you know, wilderness movie? Like what, you know, what do I, where do I want to go next year? What do I want to try to, what do I want to research? What do I want to think about? And you can sort of get creative about where you want to go. Well, let's hope we can resume that life soon. Um, I think we're all itching to get back to it. Okay, Danny, our last question comes from our previous guest, One Day at a Time's Justina Machado. Here's what she wanted to know. I love that guy. He's so funny. I love his hair. I love the guy. So yes, I want to know, is this a Danny McBride choice or is this a character choice or, or if that's his hair all the time? And either way, it's brilliant. It was it was a character choice. It was definitely not my choice uh, as far as like personal life going. It felt very befitting of Kenny Powers. It felt like something that he would have maintained when he was uh, very famous and that like holding on to it even now that he has no money just feels like it's a sign of elegance. <laughs> How did you decide on the sideburns for Jesse? 
You know, it was just I was kind of looking for a lot of the a uh, lot of the inspiration for some of the family and the characters and how they dress. I was like looking at like country singers from the like seventies, early eighties. Like that's when just country like ruled. You know, country was as popular as any type of music then, and so you had these sort of Southern celebrities that had this sort of like, I felt like it was like an Elvis-influenced sort of bravado. And so I just started looking at other like country music singers from that era and just found like Conway Twitty's photo. I was like, I like this look. This is what I think Jesse would have. <laughs> okay, so now we're turning the tables. Our next guest will be Ricky Gervais. What question would you like us to ask him? Oh, wow. I would just like to know uh, from him, like, why has he never called? Why has he never reached out? Doesn't he know how much I like everything he's made? Why won't he just call and ask if I want to participate? I love that. I will definitely ask. Danny, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Awesome. Have a good day. That's it for the 13th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to comedian and actor Ricky Gervais. Honestly, I turn into a school teacher when I'm walking down the street. I want to explain to people, listen, if you're talking to two people right, across the road, right, and you're two metres apart, I've got to walk between you. So I can't be two metres away from my room. Do it long ways along the road so I can walk on the other side of the road. They don't get out of the way. I'm in the bushes. So I've got to get in the bushes to get away from you to it. So I'm going to get Lyme disease. That's what I'm going to get. Okay, right. So no one gets coronavirus, but I'm now in a hospital bed with Lyme disease because you two idiots wouldn't get out of the way. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow.